Thank you, Kelly. Take your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We're going to begin looking in verse number 34. What is the top priority in your life? Have you even given that very much thought? As believers, we understand, at least intellectually, that God should come first in our lives. But if you ask most people about their lives today, they would say that they are full and busy, perhaps even frantic, that there are more things to do than there are hours to do them. And life can become so hectic that you wonder how you can handle already the things that you have, much less move God to first place. Well, we may decide that the answer to our dilemma is to simplify our lives. Simplify our lives by devoting ourselves to those things that are truly important. Now the problem becomes, how do I decide what's truly important? Well, in our passage today, Jesus provides an answer to that complex riddle of life. The question of what is the most important. Read with me as we pick up in verse number 34 of Matthew chapter number 22. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. That is the first and great commandment. The second is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I remember beginning back in verse 15 of this chapter, Matthew tells us of three separate occasions on which religious leaders have brought questions trying to trap Jesus. Each group thought they brought to Jesus an unanswerable question, a question that if Jesus answered yes or no, he was still going to alienate a part of his audience. First, the Herodians and some of the disciples of the Pharisees came and they brought a political question about whether one should pay taxes to the Romans. And then the Sadducees brought a theological question concerning the reality of life after death. And now the Pharisees, they bring an ethical question. An ethical question about which of the commandments was the greatest. I want you to see with me this morning, first of all, the inquiry of the Pharisees as we begin looking in verse 34 again. It says, And when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So the Pharisees had stood back while the Sadducees asked their question of Jesus and 
when they saw Jesus put put the Sadducees into a place where they had no answer. They decided it was time to make an attempt on their own to entrap Jesus. But this time, rather than sending their disciples, they're going to do it themselves. Now, to understand the situation, you have to understand who this lawyer was. The lawyer here is one of the scribes. They are the biblical authorities of their day. If you had a question about the Bible, they're the ones you went to. They had methodically studied all of the commands that God had given in the Old Testament. Now, this particular scribe, according to Mark's account, was just a cut above the norm. He had acknowledged that Jesus had answered the Sadducees wisely. And although he was involved with these others in trying to entrap Jesus, I still believe that in his heart he wanted an answer to this question. What is the first commandment of all? This man has been trying all of his life desperately to keep himself in line with the law. And since he realizes that it's impossible to keep all of the laws, he's trying to cut through the word games and get to the real issue. He's asking Jesus to explain what is the bottom line of what it means to follow God. Now, God had given ten commandments recorded in Exodus chapter 20. They tell men how they ought to live. But in order to make men capable of understanding how those commands are to be lived out in a practical way in life, the scribes had taken those commands and they had turned the Ten Commandments into 613 commandments. They governed every aspect of life. There were 248 commands and there were, two, there were 365 prohibitions, things that you could not do. And then because they considered some of these commandments, their commandments, more significant than others, they divided them into heavy and light. Heavy and light commandments. In fact, there is an ongoing debate among the scribes and the Pharisees and religious leaders about what commandments were the weightiest, as if God was more serious about some commands than he was others which were not so important. Now, there are three fallacies about this approach that they're taking. First of all, they reduced a relationship with God to the keeping of a list of rules. Now, there are still people around in our world today who want to reduce following God to a list of do's and don'ts. It's called legalism. But Christianity is not about being inhibited by rules. It's about being inhabited by the Holy Spirit who helps us to know what we ought to do. The second thing is there was no such thing as a weightier command. You know, we still have that problem. We want to divide sin into little sins and big sins. Little sins are the ones I'm guilty of, and big sins are the one you're guilty of. 
but God sees all sin the same. If we say someone has fallen into deep sin, then everyone assumes that that means that they have fallen into some kind of sexual sin or maybe drug addiction or something like that. But God looks at our heart. Even to argue with someone and to be angry with them in God's sight is a sin. Even with your spouse. To argue with our spouse, and even though everyone does it, God sees that as serious as beating them up. Now, I have to make a confession. My wife beats me up almost every morning. But once in a while, I get up first, and I'm grouchy. Second, or thirdly, they thought they could get to heaven by being good enough. And there's still a lot of people in our world that believe, if I can just be good enough, if, I can just, if my sins would just be less than the good things I've accomplished in life, if I put my good deeds on one part of the scale and my bad deeds on the other, uh, I'll be okay. But the problem is that no one can live good enough. And the law of God was not designed to help us be saved. It was designed to show us that we needed a Savior. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, Paul makes it very clear that the law was designed to be a teacher to direct us to the Savior. So the question about the law and what commandments are the most ser serious was controversial. And they thought there could be no answer to it. The second thing we see is the instruction that is given to the Pharisees. The beauty of the Lord's answer is in its simplicity and in its clarity. First, Jesus took the scripture that they already knew, and he applied them in a way that no rabbi, no teacher had ever done before. First of all, the supreme commandment. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. When we attempt to deal with the problems and pressures of our lives, we seldom start with God. Almost always, we start with our problem. Rather than looking to the God who is the only one who can lead us through those problems and pressures that we face. Well, Jesus takes us all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 3 and 4 and reminds us of the command to love God. But I... Our love of God is our response to God's love for us. 1 John 4, 19 reminds us we love Him because He first loved us. Thus man's responsibility is to respond to God's love. Now there are four ways in which we are told that we are to love God supremely. We must love God with all our heart. With all our heart. To love God with all our heart means with pure devotion. When we were first saved, we experienced that kind of devotion. That Scripture calls that our first love. And it also tells us that the fervor of that devotion can be lost. Secondly, he says that we are to love God with all our soul. 
To love Him with all our soul speaks of emotions. To love Him with all our soul means that our love for God should be full of passion. I'm not talking about sloppy sentimentality, emotion merely for emotion. I'm not talking about a fuzzy, warm feeling. I'm talking about a white, hot, passionate, consuming love. The word apathetic, however, describes the attitude of many today. Disillusionment leads to a more and more cynical outlook on life until we just don't care anymore. We're apathetic. It's interesting to consider that the word apathetic literally means without passion. He tells us that we must also love God with all our mind. And here he's talking about our intellect. Yet God expects more than just intellectual acceptance of his existence. In fact, the Bible says in in the book of James in chapter 2 and verse 19 that even the demons in hell believe that God exists, but that is not enough. It's clear from Scripture that God intends for our minds to be involved in our love for him. In Romans chapter 12, we're told that our minds must be renewed And in 1 Peter, we're told to prepare our minds for work. One last thing, we must love God with all our strength. Now, we don't find that in Matthew's account, but in Mark's account in chapter 12 and verse 30, he adds that we not only are to love God with our heart and our soul and our mind, but we are to love him with all our strength. Christianity is a heart dedicated to God, It's a soul passionately in love with Jesus. It's a mind committed to thoroughly consider the whole Word of God. And it's to love God with all our strength, which means to love God with all that we do. Christianity is a relationship to be fully lived out. In fact, Paul reminds the Christian, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to to the Father through Him. But understand this, if you try to live out your Christian life, if you try to live out your Christian faith, you are probably going to encounter opposition. It's somewhat ironic, I think, that in a society that values tolerance above all things, is so intolerant to Christians in the practice of their faith. There are those in our country who would attempt to convince us that it is acceptable for us as Christians to believe whatever we want as long as we keep it to ourselves, as long as we don't try to practice what we believe in the public arena. That's unmitigated garbage. Christianity, in order to be real, must be life-changing which means it has to be lived out. Lived out in the lives of those who say they believe. Your faith, then, to be real, must be evident in the way that you live your life, the way you conduct your business, the way you function on the job, and the way you deal with your family 
and your friends. But he not only gave them the supreme commandment, he gave them the secondary commandment. He says, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus did even more than was asked of him. He went beyond the first and greatest commandment and said, let me give you the second as well. This secondary command deals with both a presumed attitude and a prescribed action. The presumed attitude is that everyone loves themselves. Everyone cares about their, their own person. And the action that he is prescribing is based on that presumption. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, sometimes we say, well, no, we ought not to love ourselves. Well, everybody loves themselves in this sense. When a person is hungry, he feeds himself. When he's thirsty, he gets a drink. When he's sick, he takes medicine or he goes to the doctor. We are really consumed with ourselves and our needs. We are now to take that same kind of concern, consuming passion, and turn it to the needs of others. To love our neighbor is a very practical command and involves some very practical acts. Then he gives us the summary of the commands in verse 40. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now what does that mean? He's saying, well, the first part of my answer is already known to you. It's from the Shema. It is the part of Deuteronomy 6 that was the opening sentence of every synagogue worship service. They heard it every time they went to church. The first part aptly summarizes the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. And they regulate man's relationship with God. Secondly, the second part of Jesus' answer in verse 39 reminded them again of Scripture that they already know. This time from Leviticus 19 and verse 18. And this second part of Jesus' answer summarizes the final six commandments of the law, which indeed speak to our relationship with other men. Every Jew already knew both references that was quoted by Jesus, but no one had ever used that to explain to them how this made the Ten Commandments work. So Jesus' answer is a comprehensive summary of the entire law. He takes the 613 laws which man had taken and collapsed him back down to the ten, and then he took the Ten Commandments and collapsed him back down to two. In this final week of the Lord's life on earth, we're coming down to just days before his crucifixion. He has cleansed the temple and he's cast out the money changers. He's been confronted by the various factions of the Jewish religious establishment, each one taking their turn, trying to trap him with their questions. But Jesus answered each of their questions with great wisdom, and in the process he exposed them and their unbelief. All they did was succeed in discrediting themselves. The last thing that we look at is the counter question 
that Jesus raises with the Pharisees. Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. Just when it would have been best for them, before they made even bigger fools of themselves to make a hasty exit, Jesus now turns to them and he says, So let me ask you a question. Who is the Messiah? Well, it's a rather puzzling question. Jesus asked the Pharisees, What do you think about the Christ? The Christ that Jesus asked the Pharisees about is the Messiah. Whether it is the Greek word Christos or the Hebrew word, it means the same thing. It means the anointed one. So he's asking, what is your opinion about the Messiah? The one you're waiting for. Whose son is he? Now the Jews knew from the scripture that Christ, the Messiah, was the deliverer of Israel. God had promised for centuries that the Messiah would come and he would lead Israel to a glorious new time of peace and safety. They had been given many details about this Christ, including a fact that he was the descendant of King David. Now the Pharisees, they knew the Scripture. And they thought, this was an easy one. The answer was easy. The coming Messiah was a descendant of David. But what they didn't know that was that Jesus had a follow-up question that is really going to mess with their minds. We find the inadequate answer here is they said to him, he is the son of David. Now the answer is correct as far as it goes but it's inadequate. They were right. They had all the religious answers, but they didn't have the right answer. They knew the record of the Messiah, but they didn't recognize the Messiah. They knew the Scripture, but they didn't know the Savior. And so he challenges them with the truth in verse 43. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? He's really drawing them back to Psalm 110, which every Jew recognized as a prophecy of the Messiah. And the first part of verse 1 of Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord. So if the Messiah is the son of David, why does he say that? If David's descendant is to be the promised Messiah, then how is it that David in the Spirit refers to his son as his Lord? Who ever heard of such a thing? If he is the son of David, it is highly improper for David to call him Lord. It be perfectly fine for a son to call his father Lord, but it is never proper for a father to call his son Lord. 
So how could the Messiah be David's son if David is calling him Lord? How could he be both David's descendant and David's Lord? That really created a problem for the Pharisees. How could the Christ be the Lord of David and yet be the son of David? Jesus is really prodding the Pharisees to open their eyes to acknowledge that the Messiah is not only going to be the human son, descendant of David, but he is going to be a divine Messiah. Their response is recorded in verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. They didn't know the answer. But we know the answer. Jesus is both the Son of Man and the Son of God. Jesus is both fully human and fully God. Jesus is the descendant of David through his mother, Mary. And yet, he is no ordinary man. He is virgin-born Son of God. Is the question that Jesus answered an important question? Is that question that he raised with the Pharisees, is it an important question? Well, I'd say your salvation depends on the answer. If Jesus is just a man, if he's just son of man, if he's just a human, just like me and just like you, then his death on the cross didn't pay for very much. If his death on the cross as a human, he paid for his sins. But because Jesus was virgin born, lived without sin, and was the divine son of God, his death on the cross meant that he could pay for my sin and he could pay for your sin. Because he is the Son of God, when he laid down his life, it was of infinite worth. He paid an infinite amount, enough to pay for your sin and for my sin. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Jesus, and we are grateful that he came to pay for our sin. It may be that there's someone here this morning that realizes that they have no right to believe that they will live forever in heaven. They realize that they're still in their sin. Help them to realize that right here, right now, that they can turn to you and in repentance ask you to forgive them of their sin and they will be forgiven. They can leave this place today knowing not only that they're forgiven, but they are eternally saved and they have a place in heaven. Father, if there's one in such a condition this morning, then I pray that you touch their heart and help them to see their need. I pray each of us would have a glimpse at the cost of our salvation. That although you have, what we have before us is free, it certainly was not without cost. That Jesus paid the cost for our sin. And our lives should be a reflection of that. 
I pray that you might help us to love you with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you stand with me, Brother Steve?